thank you, Adam and Choir. Wasn't that good? That was just outstanding. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great day today. It was a good day except for one thing, and that was I visited your golf course, and my wife beat me. Oh. I was up, I was ahead by one stroke going into the back nine. And then some evil force overtook me. I don't know what it was, but what a neat golf course. That is great. So tomorrow is double or nothing. So I'm going to take her out tomorrow and we're going to heal and repair our relationship. Right, honey? Amen. It's God's will that I win. And uh, that's it. Kevin's wife, Eliza, told me that. Eliza told me that uh, I need to be able to win. Wow, 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 wow. Well, tonight I, I want to kind of just do a massive change-up, okay? Because tonight what I really like to do is just take a little time and teach you. Now, I'm not going to, don't worry, we're not going to run you into overtime or anything. You'll still get your ice cream or popcorn or whatever it is you have to have before you go to bed. But what I want to do tonight is I want to teach you, and I want to work, we're going to work tonight on really the core of family. Usually when I go somewhere, I like to take one time and be able to talk about what it's like to do family God's way, and what it's like to do marriage God's way. And, and so tonight's going to be just a little, it, it's going to be a teaching time as we can do this together. Um, it's interesting, I came across a, a little uh, survey that was done a bunch of kids were asked their opinions about marriage and dating, and I found their answers just incredible. Um, let me just kind of turn this bad boy off. Here we go. Um, so here it is. The first one, uh, Alan, age 10, was asked, how do you decide who to marry? And here was his answer. No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. And uh, that was his way to do it. So Lori, age eight, was asked, she was asked, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? And she responded, you have to guess, based on whether or not they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Martin, Martin is 10 years of age. I can just see Martin doing this. Martin said, this is funny, Martin said, what do, he was asked, what do most people do on a date? And his response was, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. <laughs> Pretty good stuff. Oh, there's just, there's just tons of these. Here, here's one that's, that's really interesting. Ricky, age 10, was asked, how would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10. This guy's got it together. He said, tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a dump truck. <laughs> bad, Ricky, bad, 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 bad. Grab your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And what I want to work with you tonight is on just characteristics of putting things in place that are going to make our families, our homes, our marriages stronger. Whether you're just married for the first year, whether you're single, or, or whether you're, you know, 80 years old and you say, man, this isn't for me. It is for you. It is for you. Because we have to do something to reclaim the family. Now, 
before I take off and start tonight, just a couple of things. Number one, you are where you are. You cannot unscramble scrambled eggs. Do you hear me? You are where you are. Boy, don't you wish you could get a mulligan? I was thinking that when I was out there golfing. Give me a mulligan, honey. About 15 of them, you know. Man, some of those holes are just tough. They're hard, and, and uh, there's nothing easy. And, but there are no mulligans in this thing. So you are where you are. You can't unscramble scrambled eggs. Some of you say, man, I wish I could go back and do this thing over. Some of you have been through some failed relationships, and you're going to say, oh, he's going to make me feel guilty tonight. No, no. We start tonight right where we're at, okay? We can't unscramble scrambled eggs. Try it sometime. You can't do it. You cannot put that egg back in the shell. It is what it is. Number two, hear me on this, because the devil's going to hit some of you tonight, and it's not going to be conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the enemy lying to you. There are no perfect families. Do you hear me? There are no perfect marriages. Do you hear me? I want you to say this out loud after me, big voices. There are no perfect families. Say it together. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect marriages. Okay, I'll let you in on a secret. I'm a pastor. And I see all these people that have these perfect families. And all these people who win all these awards and all these things as family of the year. And I go on Facebook and everything is hunky-dory and they're all sitting around singing kumbaya together. Can I tell you a secret? I'm their pastor. I see behind the curtain and there ain't no kumbaya going on behind the curtain. I'm the guy that picks up the pieces and watches this. But everyone has this need to present an illusion that we're the perfect family. And our kids never misbehave and our kids get all the blue ribbons and are on the honor roll. Let me tell you what, when it started with Adam and Eve all the way down, families all have a measure of dysfunction. And my goal is to put fun back in dysfunction. That's what I want to do. Let, let's heal this thing up. Let's go forward. So nobody tonight, as we're going to teach this from Scripture, I want nobody tonight to sit here and say, oh man, we're just, we're just the biggest losers that ever lived. No, welcome to the human race. And welcome to David, who was not a perfect father, who didn't have a perfect marriage. And, and I go through all of Scripture. Even Abraham, the great patriarchs of the faith, took a big swing and a miss on some things in their family. So go with me on this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 is where I want to start us with tonight. Okay? Here we go. Paul is writing Timothy. And as he writes Timothy, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I did a little work, and some of you may have a little trouble seeing this, but you're not missing anything. I did a little work on this word, this whole concept of provide for. If you get into the Greek and you take a look at that word, and some of you Greek scholars here uh, can check this out, it is a compound word. This phrase, provide for, is so rich. You know, what it, you know what it is? It's a compound word with two parts. I may misspell them. I, I didn't bring this. It's, it's not in any notes or anything. The first part is the word pros. The second part is the word, and I'm going to just phonetically spell it, naeo in the Greek. This is the word for front of. Front of. In front of. And this is the word 
for mind. Now, what this is for me, I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual learner. I, if you were to have lunch with me at a restaurant, the napkin would be out, and I'd be writing on it, and I'd, I, I, I think visually. In fact, we took our family to a really expensive um, Italian restaurant. And you know, the, they have these real tablecloths, and they put these paper things down. And I didn't realize, as I'm drawing stuff out for the family, that the crayons that I was using for the kids actually went off of the paper onto the real tablecloth. And I colored this whole thing on the linen tablecloth. And we no longer can go back to that restaurant. So, so I, 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 this, this is a word picture here. This is a word picture. Prasnao, if any wasn't, doesn't provide for his, his relatives and especially his immediate family, he is loser, double loser. He is below zero. Now, the word prasnao is a word picture you're gonna discover that I am a left-handed artist genius. So here it goes. Are you ready? This is a person, okay? Now what this is, is a thing, this is a word that's simple. Okay, have you ever met someone and wonder what they're thinking? Uh, I don't read the funny papers anymore. Used to, remember, remember years ago when we got real newspapers with ink on them and stuff, and you'd go to the comic section what would happen in the comic section if they drew a picture like this and then they had a, a cloud, a cloud? That tells you what that person is thinking about. So when Paul does this with Timothy, he says, Timothy, a man needs to have, a person needs to have on the front of his mind, what? His family. Prasnaeo really means front of mind. Front of mind, top priority. This is the big deal. And he looks at Timothy and says, Timothy, in everything that's coming at you, if you don't have on the front of your mind, number uno, one, the big one, your family, you are a loser. Well, he says, worse than an unbeliever, an infidel is as bad as it gets. Wow, this one kind of kicked me in the backside. Because it began to teach me and show me that in all the things I do, if I fail at home, I have failed. If I fail in my family, I have failed. So this put me on a course. It took me on a course where I began to wonder, okay, what is it? What is it that, that makes families what they are? I came across this project. It actually is a book that is published. I can't remember the title of the book tonight. It's published by Regal Books, and it is this research project that was done by Dr. Nick Stenay. Stenay was a great family researcher and other people, and he wanted to discover, now this is fascinating, hang with me. He wanted to discover what are the characteristics in healthy families. What are the characteristics in healthy families? Are there, are there anything we can find through secular research? This wasn't a church. This was a secular family researcher trying to find the characteristics that would be in healthy families, healthy marriages. 3,000 people surveyed across a whole variety of space, countries, geography. And you know what they came away with? This is the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. They came away with six characteristics. 
And every one of those characteristics matches a biblical principle. Isn't this just incredible? They spent all this money with all these researchers to discover the very thing that the Bible teaches us about healthy families and healthy relationships. Now, we've been working hard vertically on our relationships. Some of us need to also now convert that to horizontal relationships. Do you ever see Christian people who love God, but they can't get along with anybody else? They've never learned the horizontal part. Why is there no discernible difference between the failure rate of Christian marriages and non-Christian marriages? Huh? Maybe, just maybe, we haven't taken this faith thing and made it work at home. And maybe we ought to talk about faith at home, putting it into our families. So here's what I'm going to do. Don't worry. We're going to fly fast and low tonight. We're going to get you out in plenty of time. So don't freak out when I tell you that we are going to examine six characteristics of a healthy family. Dr. Neff, the communicator, he just went six. We're going to be here forever. I promise you we won't. Here we go. You might want to jot these down. I found them absolutely fascinating. We're going to make it, buddy. Here we go. Number one, the first characteristic they found in their research was that there was a high level of commitment to the family. They were deeply committed to their family. Now, when I began to examine this, I thought to myself, well, duh. You remember, is it not Joshua 24, verse 15? Uh, just, just complete this verse with me with your biggest outside voices, okay? Are you ready? Joshua 24, 15, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He didn't say, as for me without my house, or my house without me. He says, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. They were serious about this thing, of being deeply committed to this thing of family. Deeply committed to it. They prioritized this in their life. Paul called for this in Ephesians 5. You see, the Bible teaches us that marriage is not just a contract. Marriage is not just a promise. It's not just a convenience that marriage is a covenant relationship of one man to one woman in Christ for one's lifetime. I'll never forget Debbie Boone when she did that song, Drove Me Crazy, probably some of you never remember this, probably a couple decades ago. The whole song was based upon the fact that uh, it can't be so wrong when it feels so right. That's a bunch of baloney. That's heresy. Certain things can be wrong when they feel right. Every once in a while, someone comes to me and says, well, I just don't love him anymore. Duh. So did God say marry the one you love? No, he said love the one you married. Paul talked about this, a covenant relationship. God made a covenant with people. Now, what are covenants? Covenants are a God-sized promise. Every time God made a covenant, what did he do? He marked it with a physical sign. We're not going to talk about some of those covenants that were painful physical signs that he made, but he made one called a rainbow, which was a promise that never again will it happen that there'll be a universal flood. It may rain cats and dogs, but there'll never again be a universal flood. So I want to ask you this question tonight. How deeply committed are you to your family? How deeply committed are you to your parents? My parents are aging parents. 
We exchanged a bunch of texts today with my sister about all the latest drama with mom and dad. 94 and 95, it's just a drama every day. Mom's not with us mentally. Dad's now starting to follow mom, living in assisted living. And do you know what I've decided? They're going to be my mom and dad till they breathe their last breath. And I will honor them until the day they die. How a society treats its elderly tells a lot about its own moral character. People say, well, just get rid of them. They're unnecessary. Warehouse them somewhere and take them off. No. They're my mom and dad. Is not one of the commandments, honor your father and mother? He says, you've got to be committed to this thing of your family. Rose Beth Cantor was a researcher, I believe a Harvard researcher. And she discovered that groups that stay together are deeply, com the thing that linked them together is the depth of the level of their commitment. And so I want to ask you this question, are you really committed some of you have adult children that are ticking you off. They are so irresponsible. They're doing things you wish they'd grow up and be responsible. They're making bad decisions. Can I tell you something? God has, in his meticulous providence, put them inside of your family. They are still sons and daughters. They are a part of 1 Timothy 5.8. And you need to be committed. What's your prayer life like? Do you regularly pray for your family and cry out to God for your family? Monday is my day. Being ADHD, I have a hard time in prayer. My prayer life is the biggest battle I have. I've had to discipline myself to learn how to pray. So what I do is I take the days of the week and I just kind of have a rhythm that I've taught myself. On Mondays, that stands for mom, M. And I pray for my family intensely on Mondays. I, that's the one I focus on. Tuesdays, I pray for my team. It's a big corporate day. Wednesdays, I pray for the world, W, Wednesdays. Thursday, I pray for Sunday because I'm preparing Thursday for Sunday. <laughs> Friday, I pray for friends. Saturday, I pray for everybody. And Sunday, I say, Jesus, get me through this day without embarrassing the family, if I can do it. But Monday is always that day where we amp the thing up and we pray. How committed are you to your family? How committed are you to the prodigal in your family? Every family has a prodigal. In our greater family system, we have a prodigal. It's one of those prodigals that we would sometimes just like to take an eraser and go to the board and just say, for how many years, 35 years, we prayed. I'm just tired of the prodigal. Obnoxious, defiant, anti-God. Never stop praying because you're committed. I had the opportunity to preach my uncle's funeral, 86 years of age. My uncle had gone through failed relationships, had a problem with alcohol, was always the prodigal in the family. And my grandma, my grandma never gave up on him. And a few years before he died, he came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Why? Because he had a son that would not give up on him and said, I'm going to pray dad into heaven. And it happened, and what a privilege it was for me to preach his funeral. Number two, the second one. The second thing they discovered is these people spent time together. They spent time together. Did you hear me? They spent time together. Now this is a disappearing thing in our culture today. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 is a fascinating verse. You might want to just look at this later, but here's what it says. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Interesting word. 
it makes an assumption that you're going to spend meaningful time together. And in their research, they discovered that these families that tended to be the healthiest families spent time together. In our culture today, a person's wealth is not measured by how much money I will give him, but how much time I will give him. Two things you can give me, and I will tell you a lot about you. Give me your checkbook or your debit card statement or whatever it is, and I'll tell you what's important to you. And you give me your calendar, and I'll tell you what's important to you. Where you spend your time is what you say has worth and value. And something has happened to us. Our schedules have gone goofy. I understand this. I understand the death of the time when a family would get together and grab a meal, and now it's, man, let's just run through Arby's and get a quick sandwich. It's tough. I feel for young, you young parents today. This one's got to go to Little League, and this one's got to go over here to ballet and dance, and this one's got 4-H, and it's just like, man, maybe as a parent there's a time where we simply just have to stop and say, enough is enough. It's time this family get together and spend time. And can I just take a second and applaud young families that are here at Bayshore? You know, I, I, I want to thank you. I just want to thank you. And you may say, man, this is tough. It's hard. We're in this camper. We're in this duplex. Or we're staying in this thing. And it costs money. Let me tell you what. You are making an investment for eternity that will pay dividends forever and ever. Your kids will never remember the pair of shoes you bought them that cost some ridiculous amount of money. But they will remember an experience they had together as a family. They're going to remember it. How much time are you spending? How much time are we spending together in our marriages? Now, I'm preaching at myself. When there's one finger at you, there's this many going back at me because I live on that dangerous edge scheduling where sometimes I take Christy for granted. Say, honey, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I love you, honey, but it's tough. It's hard. The greatest thing we can communicate worth and value is the gift of time. And Peter writes these words as you spend that time and as you live with each other. Some of you parents feel like you're going to get the bad parent award if your kid's not in everything. Can I tell you what? In eternity, you may get the good parent award because you loved them and you cared for them and you nurtured them. Greatest gift my dad ever did for his entire family is a number of years back, he simply said, I've saved up money and we're all getting on an airplane and we're going up the Canadian Rockies and we're going to spend a Christmas together. And he bought the tickets with money I didn't think he really had he could spend and said, we're all going to go up, we're going to be together. And 17 of us went up and spent that time together. And now to this day, we talk about those times. You don't have to do anything elaborate. Someone says, well, I can't afford to take my family to Disney. God never said Disney's the plan of salvation. God said just spend time together. When's the last time that you've had that time? You say, man, my kids don't want to be with me. Yeah, that's what they say. But they're going to remember that time you grabbed a rod and reel and took them out fishing. They're going to remember that time you said, hey, let's go over to a race somewhere and watch stock cars race at this little Friday night track somewhere. They're going to remember it. They're going to remember those times. 
Greatest gift my dad gave me was two summers where I worked side by side with him at a camp, and I didn't get paid one penny, 15, 16 years of age. I worked all summer with my dad, and all I remember is those drives, 45 minutes out to the grounds, 45 minutes back in a big old camp truck. I slept a lot of those times, but my dad is my hero today because he spent time with me. Where you spend your time communicates your worth. Number three, the third one. The third thing they discovered in this project was good family communication. Good family communication. It's fascinating when you began to study this because this really, and I'm not going to spend the time to develop it, but this is a part of the theme of the book of Proverbs. Learning what it is to have a phone that rings in church and learning what it is to communicate and do what's well, thanks. Learning what do what it is to communicate well with each other. Here's what happens in our communication. There are three levels of communication. Dr. Neff, you teach this in your class at Indiana Wesleyan. There are three levels of communication. First level is I acknowledge you exist. I just acknowledge you exist. You know, wave, nod, hey, hi, how you doing? It's just a mere acknowledgement the other person exists. It's kind of interesting. We go downtown Chicago. It's a place we like to get away. It's kind of strange people think that, but we just come alive and we get away. We go down, to, when you walk those streets, those people don't even say hi to each other. They're walking down Michigan there, Magnificent Mile. Now, I like it when I'm in my little town where we all just, hey, we acknowledge we exist, we're friendly. You guys are good at that here. Second level of communication is the exchanging of facts. It's what happens when I go to the barber shop. And I go down and Chad and Cody cut hair, and I walk in the old barber shop, it's just like the one in Mayberry. It's got an old black and white TV in there, and I sit down and the guy says, hey, what's happening with the football team? Oh, so-and-so got hurt. And How's the weather? Hey, I heard so-and-so sold his land. We exchange facts. There's a third level of communication. And can I tell you, guys, men, this is where we're really bad. And that's the exchanging of feelings and the depth of heart where we do it. Guilty is charged. When you begin to study scripture, you see that in Proverbs, it talks about the power of words and the power of communication. I was riding with Christy one time. We were going down the road, and I, I don't know why I did this. I think I'd come to a seminar somewhere. Actually, I did. I, I heard Bob Beale speak, and, and he talked about fifth grade in his speech, and he had us go back into fifth grade. And I said to Christy, I said, Christy, Tell me about fifth grade. And about an hour and a half later, she came up for air. I mean, she told me stuff about her that I never knew. I never knew in fifth grade that one of her closest friends died. What's it like as a fifth grader to lose a friend? I never recognized this stuff. And here I've been married to this lady for all these years, but we'd be exchanging facts, pick up the kids, go here, do that, get the shirts at the laundry, what's happening here and there. And we never had gone down to deep communication. Guys, I, I'm going to say something that's going to tick you off, but it's true. Your wife's deepest need for emotional intimacy, intimacy will be met. The question is, who's going to meet it? And in God's plan, he's asked you to meet it. He's asked you to be the guy. He's asked you to communicate at a deeper level. You say, my kids don't want to talk to me. Can I tell you, if you've set up the stage right, you will be surprised how they will open up to you. You'll be surprised what they share with you. 
When I go and visit my dad today, it's just so much fun to sit there and say, Dad, tell me what it was like when you were a boy. He takes me back on the farm. He takes me back to when his dad died when he was 16. He said, I cried more tears the first 17 years of my life than I've cried since I was 17 years old because of the death of my father. And I began to see that. We have to learn what it is to communicate well with each other, communicate good with each other. The Bible talks about that. Number four is up on the screen. You can see it. And that is learning to express appreciation to each other. Learning to express appreciation. The Bible's loaded with this. In Romans, it talks about learning what it is. Romans chapter 10, verse 12. It talks about honoring each other. And learning to express appreciation to each other. Learning how to declare worth. Oh, oh, finish this. Finish this for me. Would you do this? That kid, that child, that baby has a face only a mother could love. Now, what does that say? Now, I know what it says is, man, we got a homely kid on our hands. But what it does say is every one of us wants to at least have a mother that loves us. And learning what it is to express appreciation to each other. Learning what it is to affirm each other, to build each other up, to care for each other. The Bible is loaded with this. If I could spend time in Ephesians 4, I would spend time teaching you on the beauty of healthy interpersonal relationships. Learning to forgive each other. Forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. And learning what it is to do that. When's the last time some of you who are my age and up, you've told a child of yours, I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you that I care about you. Isn't this weird? To this day, my, my mom and dad are in our congregation. Third service, uh, second service, excuse me, two-thirds of the way back on my right, second section in. They're there every week. Dad got new hearing aids and we put a new system in so he hits this little button and he can turn it on when I preach. He turns it off when the music gets loud, but he turns it on when I preach. To this day after his service if my dad walks up to me and say, man Dave, thanks that message meant a lot to me something jumps inside of me you can tell me you can tell me, you can tell me but there's no other man in this world who can say something to me, the affirmation that my dad can give me, even at my age. Everyone wants to be loved. The deepest craving of everyone's heart is just to be loved. Some people go about it in obnoxious ways. And that's why he put us in families. In, is it Psalm 68, verse 10? I'm just going from memory, where it says, God has set the lonely in families. Whoa! Whoa! God has set the lonely in families and he's put his arms around them in a way so that they can experience this love as they express appreciation to each other. Number five, number five. In their research, they discovered that in families that were healthy and excelled, that were above average, they had good problem solving in the midst of crisis. Now what they discovered is, is that these families that were in the top tier had just as many problems as any other family. But they discovered that these people had developed a way to make it through when the lights go out, when disaster strikes, when things go bad. 
when things don't work, they discovered in these families that they had this ability to solve problems when things went bad. They, they had this ability to keep their hands on the steering wheel and do it in the midst of crisis. I told you the other night, I was 16 years old, I got my first car, a 1962 Chevrolet. Remember, payments, $43.37 a month. Dad told me when I got the car, he said, there's one rule with this car, don't ever have an accident. Never have an accident. You're 16 years old, your insurance rates are going to go straight up, you're going to be dead if you have an accident. Don't have an accident. So I'm driving down Vine Street at 67th, and the car in front of me, for some crazy reason, decided to stop and wait for traffic to pass so they could turn left. And they impeded my progress. And so I just ran right into the rear end of them. And I wrecked my car, my 62 Chevy. And I'm, as, I, as I just rear end this guy because I wasn't paying attention, these words go through my head, don't ever have an accident. And so I get out, walk over to this lady's house, and I call 466-1718. Hello, Dad. Yeah, Dave, how you doing? I wanted to say, how are you doing, you know? I said, Dad, I, I had just a little problem. What's the problem? Well, I had an accident. What happened? Well, car just kind of stopped for no reason, and I just kept going. And He said, where are you at? 67th and Vine. He said, I'll be right there. And I'm thinking, this is it, man. It's going to be the electric chair. I'll never get married. I'll never have a car. It is all over till Jesus comes. The executioner is driving down Vine Street. This is not good. Here I am thinking it's all over. Dad pulls up. And as he pulls up, his first words to me were these words, how are you doing? And my response was, how are you doing? <laughs> and then he said this, never forget it as long as I live. He said, things we fix people we can't. I'm glad you're okay. And I went, yes, there's hope. I dodged a bullet. Okay, my son is 16 years old. I told my son when he got his car, I said, whatever you do, never have an accident. But one day he took my car and he's driving down the road in my car. And all of a sudden, someone comes driving into our subdivision and said, Dave, you better get down by the Presbyterian Church. And I said, eh, what's the deal? He said, I think Scott's been in an accident. I jumped in the other car, and I thought, I'll kill the kid. I told him not to have an accident. So I race down there, I get out of the car, I slam the door shut, and I walk over thinking, what idiot thing did you do? And as I walk over to him, I said, how you doing? He looked at me like, I think I'm okay. You know what I said? Things we fix, people we don't, I'm glad you're okay. Now where did I learn that? I learned that because I was in a home where a dad who probably wanted to string me up began to show me that he loved me no matter what I did. No matter what I did. That his love for me was irrevocable. That he was going to express appreciation to me. Some of your kids just want to be loved. Sure, they're little critters. Sure, they misbehave. Sure, they're tough on you. Sure, they're hard. But what would happen if you would let them know one thing, that no matter who you are, I will always love you. I will love you so much. I will discipline you if you need to be disciplined. But we learn to express appreciation to each other. 
There's some men here in this room who would just love to have appreciation expressed toward them for the hard work they do. And there are some wives here who would love to have it. What would happen in our homes if we would learn to express this? And there's a whole scriptural thing we could go into and unpack it, but we're not going to take the time. The last one was this. I go through this study, and I'm, I'm over here thinking about this prosnaeo thing, front of mind, family. And, and, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, boy, my temptation on the front of my mind is jobs, uh, cubs. Hey, they did win the World Series. Did you hear about that? It was incredible. It was incredible. Corn huskers. You know, go big. Yes, go big red. He said, no, I want your family to be on the front of your mind. Number six. Number six. This blew me out of the water. Blew me out of the water. This is Nick Stenay, a secular researcher, doing a secular research project on families that were in the top tier. And he discovered the presence of a family faith. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. He found that out, what we knew, that a family that's going to center their life around the person of Jesus Christ, where the dad is going to be the spiritual leader, the family priest, where the mom is going is to show that love and kindness and model the spirit of Jesus, that amidst all their humanity, there's going to be this thing that's going to have the presence of a deep family faith. The Bible says the sins of a father are visited to the sons, but the blessings are visited up to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, you can succeed in everything you do in life, but the greatest, most important thing next to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is pouring your life, your love, your prayer, your affection, and building healthy families. It's not how fast you start. You are where you are. It's how well you take from this point on and say, God, by your grace, I want to be the husband you've called me to be, the father you've called me to be, the wife you've called me to be, the mother, the grandmother, the grandfather, the great-grandmother, the great-grandfather, the aunt, the uncle. I want to be that person by God's grace. For if a man does not put his family on the front of his mind, he is worse than a double loser because what makes it our faith in Christ plays out at home. Father God, somehow on a Thursday night, I sense you wanted to reorder this for somebody. And you just wanted me to just kind of challenge somebody to be the daddy ought to be, to be the mom you designed them to be. To be the grandparent that's not going to be old and angry and nagging and mean and ratting on people all the time and talking about what it was like when they were kids, but just simply saying, man, I love you. I love you. And I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to believe in you. I want you all to do something right now. I want you just to stand together with me. Would you do that? I want you to stand together with me. 
I want you to do something. Christy, I'm going to ask if you'll just come up here with me. Would you do that? Would you just come up here right now? This lady is something else to put up with me. Living with me is a challenge. She's amazing. I've taken her all over the world. She's gone and she prays. In fact, usually before I come over at night, she just lays a hand on me and prays for me. I think she prays and said, God help him not to do anything stupid tonight, you know, and, <laughs> and Holy Spirit, may you work. And I wonder if I could borrow one of your mics there. Could I just do that? I've got Matt's mic here. I want you, if you're with your spouse right now or you're close, I just want you to grab hands. I want you to do that. Would you do that? I want you just to grab hands. If you've got kids there with you, grab hands. And if you're by yourself, just, just kind of fold your hands symbolic. Some of you are single. Some of you have lost loved ones. Tonight hurts. I want you just to do that. And I would like my prayer warrior to pray a blessing upon you tonight. Could I do that? Christy, would you do that for me? I will. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that you put us in families. And even then, when it's tough, and even when things are not perfect, we know, Lord Jesus, that you and you alone can be the center, and you can give us the strength and the wisdom and the guidance to be who we ought to be in our families. I thank you for every mom that's here tonight. I thank you for every dad that's here, for every child, for every grandma and grandpa. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've asked us to play a role and that you didn't just shoot us out there and say, try your hand at it, but you said, let me be your guide. And every day we can come to you and we can pour through your word and we can ask you for guidance and we can ask you for strength. We can ask you for wisdom. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful to the calling you've put on us. Now, Lord, I, I recognize from my own experience and from talking to other people, even in this week, that sometimes it gets tough. There's anger. There's resentment. There's people not talking to one another. There's people talking to each other too much and saying the wrong things. But, oh, Jesus, how I pray that in this place tonight we would be marked by your Holy Spirit. We would take your word, apply it to our hearts, and be all that you've asked us to be. Help us to just to be faithful. You've given us something to steward, something so precious to steward our families. Help us to be found faithful in stewarding that calling. And tomorrow when we're tempted to say the wrong thing and be angry and jump down somebody's throat, oh, Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us to be like you and to love and to love unconditionally. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we can count on you. We can count on you. We love you, Lord, tonight. Pray these things in your precious name.